You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 152 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm I'm all right. I've got a clean house. I think we talked about that last week. It's really clean now. I've done even more cleaning. I think I'm at the procrastinating cleaning stage of my existence now. Wow, we're the opposite. I've got the most unclean house, but the cleaners are coming today. And I always love it when the cleaners come, but I hate it like in the weekend before the cleaners come because it's a disaster here. And a friend of mine popped in and it was so embarrassing because, you know, yeah, not pretty. Mm. And uh, my partner was suitably, you know, he just said he was so embarrassed as well. But anyway, it will be clean by tonight. Yay. Yay. <laughs> but I'm You've excited got the fairies coming. Yes, the fairies are coming. <laughs> I'm excited about something. Now, oh. this is not a sponsored thing at all. It's just only just happened. So right. that's why I'm excited. So you may remember that, and this got nothing to do with writing, but I'm just so excited I have to share. Okay. You, you may remember that, because you know I have two cats that are the cutest cats in the world, Rex and Rocky. Yes. So um, I don't remember if I mentioned to you, but recently um, Fancy Feast had this um, a competition where if you redeem enough dockets of your Fancy Feast, like you have to buy one billion cans of Fancy Feast. Truckloads of Fancy yeah. Feast, right? Not <laughs> so a sponsored w- post, yeah. <laughs> no. So, I, you know, I was saying to my partner, can you, can you buy 124 cans today, please? Because, you know, we'll use them at some point. And if hmm. you redeem enough... You get, um, you can, uh, so if you get enough dockets, you can redeem things. So I got them, I got Rex a blue Leonie Edmiston collar and I got Rocky a green Leonie Edmiston collar to match their eyes. Then I got Rex. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just, <laughs> just quietly giggling hysterically here, but okay. Yes. Leonie Edmiston cushion so that he could sit on it like the prince that he is. And then... Today, I opened the mail and I think they realised, oh, my God, dedicated fan, crazy cat lady, and they sent me, like, for free, like, for no reason. But just truckloads of fancy feast purchases, yeah. Leonie Edmiston scarf for Rex and a Leonie Edmiston, yeah, like it's a cat scarf. You know how you can wear bandanas and stuff. And um, a Leonie Edmiston cat bowl. How good's that? Little match. (laughs) <laughs> I know I know I'm a writer, but I have no words right now. Not a not a word to scratch myself with. Cat scarf? Yeah. It's got a really nice design on it too. <laughs> I'll I'll take a photo of oh, Rex. Too. Can you put yeah. it on Rex and actually just post that on the internet somewhere for us all to see? 
Of course. And admire his beauty. Yes. Okay. Can I okay. also put a photo of Procrasty Pup next to him looking askance? Because that's <laughs> what he'd be doing. That's such a good word, isn't it? Askance. It is a good word. I love it. Mm. Anyway, you have not actually tuned into the Fancy Feast podcast. No, no. It's not sponsored at all. I paid all, I paid all, like proper money for the one million cans of Fancy Feast that I had to get to, you know, I should. You realise like, you, realize you could have just gone and purchased the. You can't. And I say purchased because I feel that this is a purchasing moment. (laughs) I think you could have gone and purchased the the collars and things yourself. No, you can't. That's the (gasps) only way to get them. It is the only way. A money can't buy experience. Yeah. So that's a very clever promotion actually. But anyway, yes, we digress. This is So You Want (laughs) to Be a Writer and we would like to give a shout out to Trace Luke from Australia and Trace Luke left us a review on iTunes and said, love it. I got onto this podcast by listening to the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast series. I love the advice and the author interviews. Thanks, gals. Thank Thank you. you. See, that bit of cross-promotion there, Val. Yeah, there you go. Of course, if you're into murder and mayhem or rather crime and thriller writing, do check out our Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast, which is all crime and thriller writers and they explore the dark side of writing and also the dark side of, you know, thinking of their stories and characters. I always find it fascinating how they do that because Mm -hmm. I guess mine is more focused on, you know, cats and fluffy things and <laughs> and not about murder. But anyway, let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, shall we? Yes, let's. So some news, some good news and bad news. But uh, the the not so great news is that Yen, you know, the indie publication, Yen Magazine has uh, announced its final issue. It is, oh. it will be no longer. But before everyone lets out a collective you know, um, woe is the industry. I just want to say that for every closure, there is a a new magazine because a new magazine has just launched called Breathe Magazine and uh, it kind of, Real fills the gap that that Yen uh, is now leaving because mm. it is it's meant to be about well being, mindfulness, creativity, and escaping. Now I have yet to check it out. I have yet to go to the newsagent and get one. But mm. from the website and from the images, you know, and the and the layouts in the website, it looks the vibe. Seems a lot like uh, Flow magazine, F-L-O-W, which originates in the Netherlands uh, but is translated into English and I get obviously the English version. And uh, and I love that magazine. So I'm very keen to check out Breathe magazine. I hope that it is uh, just as awesome. So, yeah, people, you know, moan that the print industry is dying and that there are less opportunities for writers. And while I agree that the print industry is definitely going through a rationalisation, I personally think there are more opportunities for writers than ever before because of the explosion in content writing and and content marketing. And Mm. all the same principles of, you know, magazine writing and feature writing apply to content writing. And I'm finding that a lot of people are just getting full-time work work in content writing. So what do you think? Well, I I think it's really interesting. I'm just going to go back to the print magazines for a brief moment. I think Mm. it's really interesting that the magazines that are opening and the magazines that are sort of making a mark um, Mm. are things like, as you said, Flow and Slow and Breathe. Mm. Um, Mm. It's all sort of, it's that real escape 
offline experience. Yes. And I, I think, you know, it's like a niche thing, but I think that if they get that right, then I think that that's probably where magazines need to be. I think it is that that moment of – because I've seen a lot of people talking, you know, on Facebook and stuff recently just about – um, I think particularly in the last few months with the change in presidency in the US and things like that, mm. that the um, social media is just it's at lightning speed at the moment. Things are changing every five minutes. So much mm. of the news seems to be, you know, um, sad, bad, mm. outrageous, you know, all of those sorts of things. And people are really getting sick of it. And it's an interesting mm. thing where they're sort of stepping away from it a little bit. Um, and I suspect that, you know, any magazine that can find the right sort of combination of things that will give people that moment to themselves, have you say mindfulness and well-being and all of those sorts of things, um, I think there's definitely room for that. But, yes, and I, as to, to, to go on to your other point regarding freelance writing, I think that there are enormous numbers of opportunities for freelancers at the moment um, in lots and lots of different areas. And I think it's a matter of um, looking at all of those different areas and deciding which of those um, or which combination, let's mm. let's be frank, because you are going to need a combination of things, yeah. um, which combination of those things, you know, you're, you're going to, to, to uh, focus on. Because I think yes. a, a scattergun approach with freelancing is – exhausting and is also um, probably not going to work out. It's much better if you sort of like work out a niche that you want to work in and worry away at that for a while until you establish yourself. You know, you, you sort of like snuggle into it as you do and then you're sort of comfortable and that's where that, – and then then you look at where, where else can I go, what can I do next. I agree and I really think that your point about which combination is – uh, is really, really relevant because I know that when I first started out, I did like 100% regular feature writing. And mm. then I started including maybe 10, 20% um, content writing or custom mm. kind of writing mm. or corporate writing. And I thought that that was a nice balance. And then I just realized I wanted to make money. <laughs> mm. And so I went 50 50. And that to me was a great balance for me at the time because I wanted to save a, a deposit for a house. And mm. you know, that sort of thing. And so it was great to have that 50 50 because I still did a lot of the feature writing, which is where I met, in my mind anyway, the most fascinating people. And mm. then I got uh, that regular and lucrative income from the corporate content writing. So you, it, the, the thing is that you need to actually try it before you can determine your combination. So mm. you might have to be a little bit scattergun at the at the start just to yeah, just to sample. Yep. And then and then see how you go. Yep. All right, so let's move on to this post which I found on um uh, a site called Signature, mm -hmm. uh, making well-read sense of the world. And I just liked the um the title. It's by someone called Georgia Hunter and the title is you weren't there, so what? Four tips on writing historical fiction. Oh, interesting. <laughs> obviously when you write historical fiction, you weren't there, right? Mm. And one of the things she says is first set the stage. I mean that one is a really obvious one. But mm -hmm. the next one I think is so important is forget your own perspective because I have read some books and I only I don't know how they this gets past the editors because it's the historical fiction for example and the in the narrative because you're 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 in that moment in time in history yeah. and you're in that world and then 
oh, bang, it's like something hits you like a ton of bricks because in the narrative the author has written um, something that references present day. Mm. The weirdest thing, not like the, like she'll describe something and then she'll say, it's not like the whatever, the telephone of today or something. It's mm. like, but they, did it, how, they wouldn't even know that then. I, I was in this world and I wouldn't even yeah. know that the telephone or the email or whatever um, had existed. And I honestly don't know how that would get past an editor, but obviously it did. And mm. it's just so jarring. It's so important to, to you've got to stop your timeline, you know what I mean? Yes, you do, and I think one of the one of the places that um, is maybe less obvious than that uh, that authors can can go wrong is with language, in the sense mm. of particularly slang. Slang can yes. be so incredibly uh, difficult to get right, um, yes. and it's one of those things that if you and we'll do it without even thinking, you'll use a word that is um, a current day word that is, or, or even a phrase that just coming out of the mouth of someone who was meant to be. Um, you know, in in the nineteen twenties or or in the even the nineteen thirties or forties or whatever is just wrong, and mm. you just it's sometimes you don't even realise it, which is why reading your words out loud can be really really important, particularly when you're writing in in a voice that is not contemporary, um, because mm. you will hear it. It will it's it, so like you say, it jars you when you read it out loud. Um, so that's quite interesting. I've got a an interesting, uh, I mean, I don't write historical fiction per se, but my worlds are, you know, historical, mm. alternative, mm. Should we call it alternative facts, alternative <laughs> historical. Um, and I was writing a, a piece the other day, I was working, oh, I'm working through uh, the edit of a of one of my books, and I had used the phrase Indian summer. And oh. because I was looking at that sort of extended uh, summer that, that these people were experiencing, and um, and I suddenly thought, I don't know that if that would work because I think the phrase mm. Indian summer was one that was definitely, um, it wasn't actually uh, popular, I've discovered once I looked it up, until after the sort of 1700s and 1800s it became ah. more of a, of a, yeah, so it was not something that they would have said, you know, at the time that my, my books are kind of alternatively set. So I had to think of a different way to describe <laughs> to describe that without saying that. Um, yeah, and those right. are the kinds of things you need to look for when you're writing. I mean, as I said, I'm not even writing historical fiction and probably it wouldn't even matter in a kind of fantasy-style novel like I'm writing, but it mattered to me. I read it and I yeah, thought, no, something not that, right. that's not quite right. Yeah. But in addition to taking out the slang, sometimes it's useful to put in the slang absolutely. of the era. Yeah, and I absolutely. remember reading um, Pamela Hart's book, um, The War Bride, some of which is set in uh, Avalon, actually, in mm. where, where I live, and they go body surfing which is what we would call it today. And but back then, I think that the term was surf surf shooting. Oh. Yeah, so she discovered that because she um you know researched the surf life saving, you know, the surfing culture of the era and stuff like that or or what people did at, at the beach at, in that time and yeah, that and it was and it was interesting because it it was um it it, it fit in. It fit in with the with the with the the world at the time, if you know what I mean. 
Well, Natasha Lester, a good case in point, is probably her book, um, A Kiss from Mr Fitzgerald, which is set in New York in the 1920s. And there's a lot of 1920s slang used in that. So yes. there's no mistaking where you are. There's a lot of the cat's whiskers and cat's pyjamas and all of that sort of stuff going on. And um, because she's building a world within sort of the rockets and, and yes. you know, very specific sort of part of New York history and um, it was it's very fun to read because of that you you sort of reading it and you're going seriously <laughs> but that's yes. what they said yeah yeah definitely all mm. right so let's move on to something a little bit different here mm. is a link from a website called the productivityist <laughs> okay. productivityist and um, it's called how I fixed my broken writing process. It's by mm. someone from Bell, uh, sorry, someone called Bell Cooper who has to write a lot of stuff. So this is more relevant for freelance writers who do copywriting and content and that sort of thing, who do need to write a lot of blog posts or articles or research a lot of blog posts and articles. Now, one of the things that she says is that her you know, process for writing a new article generally goes something like this. Number one, search, as in research articles, research papers, books, whatever, that about what she's writing about. Number two, read all the content, which can take up time. Number three, make an outline for the article, listing the main points and that sort of thing. Number four, start writing. Number five, edit the article and, you know, check facts and so on. Now, she described her process as being broken because she, uh, when it came down to it, Again, number one, I, she couldn't remember which facts came from which sources. So she was constantly going back to her material and stuff. Um, and she couldn't remember enough about what she'd read <laughs> in order to write the first draft. And uh, three quotes in particular tripped her up often because she didn't know who said them and which were the useful quotes to use. Now, in this post, which we which we will put in the show notes, and of course the show notes are at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au, you can read how she solved her problem Um in the show notes, but I thought the way she solved it was crap. So I totally I, agree. <laughs> I'm reading the way she solved the problem and I thought that just looks like it's creating a lot Stupid. more work. Oops. You better explain it because we're talking. We are on a podcast here, Valerie, yeah. so you need to now explain <laughs> how she solved the problem. So she, in my opinion, um, she solved her writing process. And again, you can read it because there are um, photographs to go with it because she's a very visual person and she does photographs of her notebooks, which are very cute notebooks and they've got lots of nice pictures and stuff. But she solved her problem in a way that I believe is so convoluted that I can't explain it. So uh, <laughs> having said that, having said that, I wanted to address how I think she should have solved the problem because I believe that this is a, a dilemma, an issue and a scenario facing people today who do have to write several things at once, yes. you know what I mean, several right. articles. Yes. Okay. And I think that it can be very um, – She, you can come across this problem if you leave everything online. And I know this sounds old school, but if you've got five articles to write – 
and a whole ton of research for five different articles, I would be, first of all, when you, even though you probably do your research online, which is 100% fine, I would be taking out a, se- a separate notebook or a separate um, uh, you know, storage place uh, in either Evernote or OneNote for each article. I would mm-hmm. be putting the relevant research in each of those um, note in each of those notebooks, so yeah. that all the research is grouped according yep. to article. And then it's like having five piles of paper, except it's just electronic. Yeah. But then when you're ready to to attack that article, I would print it out. And when I print it out, I w- would re- that's when I would read it. I wouldn't read all five at once. That's just stupid. Um, yeah. Uh, I would print, I would read out that particular article. I would get my green highlighter or whatever highlighter is of your choice and I would highlight the bits that I know. The relevant bit. Are the gems. And I know yep. anything not highlighted is I don't have to read. I don't have to come back to because it's just guff or it's filler or it's, you know, not relevant. And once I've got a whole bunch of green highlights, I will construct my article from there and every time I use that green highlight I put a stroke through it so I know okay it's been used now and I can visually see which green highlights have not been used and have yet to be included in my article okay so I just thought I would share that because well can I I so can I just go I go one step further than that Tell me, tell me. So I I I uh, I do my research, I find the relevant articles. I I um copy and paste the relevant quotes into a word document with a link to the original article underneath so I know exactly yeah. where it came from. Yeah. Um then once I have all of my relevant bits and pieces that I need, I print that out, including any interviews that I've done, I print yep. them out. Yes. Um question and answer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then once I have all of that in front of me, um I've read and I read through all of it and then I I do exactly the same thing. I like cross out as I go through any quotes or whatever that I use, but I've got the relevant, I've got the relevant information and only the relevant information in front of me before I begin. That's how I roll. Yep. Fantastic. Absolutely. So I think that, um, look, I mean, you can also, if you're curious, have a look at Bell Cooper's uh, solution. But um, and, and of course, if that works for Bell, that's fine. You need to work out what works for you. But personally, I felt it actually not efficient. Um, but, you know, if it works for Bell, that's that's fine. All right. There you go. <laughs> glad we got through uh, that. I'm glad we got through that. All right, so shall we move on to our giveaway for this week? Let's do that. Something a bit different this week, Al. Mm-hmm. Love that. We have a three-month subscription mm-hmm. to the personalised book subscription service Bookabuy. Mm. Now, you're probably wondering what is Bookabuy? I so- am wondering, so I'm <laughs> hoping that you're going to explain that to me. <laughs> Bookabuy is a personalised book subscription service operated by husband and wife team Chris and Melissa Tantchev. Now, they say when our readers subscribe, we ask them to provide a bit of detail around their reading preferences. We then use this information to cater an individual reading experience for each one of our subscribers. Each subscriber receives one new hand-picked and gift wrap book a month delivered to their door. We we pride ourselves on being a unique and personalised service which allows readers of all ages and interests to discover new books and 
authors. So this, uh, you have a chance to win a three-month book subscription into the genre of your choice. And if you would like to do that, then just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win. Now you have until the 27th of February to enter. So get in there quick, writerscentre.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step-by-step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how ebooks and audiobooks will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our on-demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash publishing. All right, are we ready for the word of the week? Oh, yes. We've had cats and collars and all sorts, so how could we go wrong with the word of the week at this point? Well, I might not be pronouncing it right, so I'll just give it a go. Well, i just got to say it slow. Very there... similitude. Well done! <laughs> <laughs> Come on, There's Val. lots of syllables. It's not my word of the week. It's Val's word of the week, and the word of the week is verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. That's six syllables. Yeah. That's like a lot. Verisimilitude. I'm going to be very good with a syllable. I'll have you know. There you are. Verisimilitude. Okay. This suggestion for word of the week comes from Brooke. So thank you so much, Brooke, for this. Now, according to the Macquarie Dictionary, it means something having merely the appearance of truth. Mm-hmm. Verisimilitude. Something having merely the appearance of truth. So you might say... Although the book of the, although the musical The Book of Mormon does have some verisimilitude, it does not accurately portray what really happens in the Mormon Church. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I've used that example because I recently saw The Book of Mormon, the musical, and you in enjoyed it, didn't you? Oh my God, go see it! It's so All fun. Right. Oh my God! But, yeah. Oh my God. So yes, verisimilitude. <laughs> Fabulous. All right. See if you can use it in your blog post this week and let us know if you do use the word of the week uh, in something that you write. We would love to check it out. Okay. Shall we move on to our writer in residence? Let's. Oh, okay. Okay. So some time ago I bought this book called Spell It Out. It's like, you know, about um, how spelling developed through the ages. It's just my kind of book, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. Anyway, then I saw this book called Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar. And it was written by the same guy, David Crystal. And I thought, oh, wow, I've got to like chat to this guy. And, you know, it can be a bit risky when you're talking to a word nerd because there is a chance that the word nerd isn't that interesting. But he was a cracker. No, really? (laughs) Yeah, he's a cracker. I could have talked to him all day. 
day. Like, I know, was... I'm not questioning that. I'm just questioning you. I just love the fact that you say, oh, there's a danger when you talk to a word nerd that they might not be that interesting. <laughs> Coming from a word nerd, I find that really funny. I'm sure David's amazing. He is amazing. He knows so much. He, it's a cracker. He, he is the Honorary Professor of Linguistics at the University of Wales, Bangor, and his many books range from clinical linguistics to the liturgy to the to, to the liturgy mm-hmm. and Shakespeare. So he's written a number of books, including The Story of English in 100 Words, Spell It Out, The Singular History of English Spelling, which is the one that I, um, uh, that I have, and this one, Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar, and if anyone can make grammar interesting, it's definitely David Crystal. So let's have a listen to him. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. It's a real pleasure. Now, your book is Making Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar, and I'm a sucker for these sorts of books. And every time I go to a bookshop, I buy books like this, and I'm, I've got several of yours. Now, just for some of the readers who, I mean, some of the listeners who haven't read your book yet, can you tell us what it's about? Well, the thing that surprises people, I suppose, is uh, is the title as much as anything else. You don't normally associate a word like grammar with a word like glamour, do you? No. It's, uh, <laughs> most people remember grammar, if they ever did it at all in school, with a rather boring sort of, I'm going to analyse this sentence and that is a noun and that is a verb and that is a subject and that is an object and all this sort of thing. And uh, glamour doesn't come into it. But what uh, is interesting about this is that the two words grammar and glamour actually have the same origin. You know, five or six hundred years ago, they were the same. And it was because grammar had all these magical associations that we associate with the modern use of the word glamour. And that's what the book's about. It's to try and point out to people that if they restrict themselves to just the thought that grammar is about analyzing a sentence and just labeling the parts, well, they've missed the point. It's a bit like, you know, going for a, learning to drive. And uh, the driving instructor says to you, now I want you to learn all the parts of the car. Uh, so this is the wheel and, and that is the brake and that is the accelerator and so on. And you learn all the parts of the car and you know how these parts of the car all work. And then you go for your driving test and the man says, now, can you tell me where the brake is? And you say, there it is. Can you tell me where the steering wheel is? There it is. You've passed. Well, of course, you haven't even begun to drive yet. You have to know about being on the road and being sensitive to other road users. You have to know where to drive and why you want to drive. And it's exactly the same with grammar. If you restrict yourself just to nouns and verbs and things like that, then it's a bit like just knowing the parts of the car. You've got to know why you want to drive, where you want to drive your grammar to, why you want it to be used at all in language. How is it used in language? And that's when it starts to get exciting. And that's what the book is basically about. Now, you are one of the very few people in the world, I think, who can make grammar sound glamorous or interesting. And if, when you're writing a book about grammar, as you say, you know, many people would think this is no easy feat because apart from ha- having to have a good knowledge of grammar, it's 
when you write a book about it, you have to make it interesting reading if you're going to keep people engaged in the book, right? Which you absolutely do. And from the the first page, I was already laughing out loud. Now, <laughs> what what were your before you started writing this book? What were your strategies in in what, making this an interesting, readable, and clearly a very entertaining book? Well, the main strategy is to explore exactly why people use grammar in the way they do. Now, this is the interesting thing. People don't ever ask the question why in relation to grammar. They ask the question what, you know, how do we analyze this sentence? That is a noun, etc. But why use grammar at all? And if you say to people, now, grammar is all about the communication of meaning. That's why I call the book Making Sense. That's what it's to do with. Language is there. You and I are talking now because we want to mean to each other. We want to understand each other. It's all about meaning. So the next question is, where is meaning in language? And many people think that meaning is in vocabulary, that if you don't know the meaning of a word, you look it up in a dictionary. But, you know, vocabulary is only the beginning of the story of meaning. A word by itself doesn't have meaning, or rather, put it the other way around, it has too much meaning. If I say to you the word table, then you've got a vague idea what I'm getting at, but you don't know whether in my head I mean a piece of furniture or a, a diagram on a page in a book or a mountain in Cape Town in South Africa or whatever. You, you say to me, put it in a sentence and then we'll know what you mean. So I do. I say, the leg of the table is broken. Or I say, I spent all morning climbing the table. Or I say, there was a mistake in the second row of the table or something like that. And then you know what I mean. And this is the point. Sentences make sense of words. That is what sentences are for. They're there to make sense. Without sentences, language doesn't make sense. And grammar is the study of sentences. So the best way to study grammar is to go and look at the way sentences are used in the real world and show that the way in which we use grammar is actually the only mechanism we have to allow us to talk to each other in a sensible kind of way. It therefore underlies every act of communication that we have. And so in writing a book like this, what you do is you go out into the real world and go looking for real instances of grammar in the street, in the home, in the shops, in the in the taverns, everywhere you can go and go on a grammar hunt, as Michael mm -hmm. Rosen once called it. You know, we're going to catch a big one. We're going to look for grammar out there. And that's when it gets exciting and glamorous. And so this is not your first book about words or sentences or the quirks of the English language. When did you personally first become so interested in in words and English? I think it's... Uh, there are two stages to this. One is to an interest in language generally, and then an interest in English in particular. Now, you know, I'm speaking to you from Wales, uh, where I live now, and this is where I grew up. Now, this part of Wales where I live in Holyhead, it was, back in the 1940s, uh, very much, still is, very much a bilingual area, you know, English and Welsh. 
But I was growing up in an English-speaking household. But on the street, there was this other strange thing that I couldn't understand. And I remember my mum told me I was about three at the time, uh, asking her, you know, why can I understand these people and not understand those people? What is going on? What is this thing called that, that is causing me a problem? And she said, well, that's called language, dear, or whatever. You know, we had a conversation about it. Mm. And I think when you grow up in a bilingual area, you end up with a natural curiosity about language. The, the, the different languages, as it were, come onto your consciousness and make you wonder why this way, why not that way? And then gradually, of course, I learned other languages in school, you know, French and Latin and this sort of thing. Mm. And then I wanted to have a university course where the two sides balanced, you know, there would be the language side and the literature side. And I chose English because I liked the English language and I was very much a creative writer in those days. You know, I wanted to be a great novelist and things like this, not a, not a linguist. That was the least of my thoughts. But when I went to university, I met a crowd of English language enthusiasts there, real specialists in the language, and they just bowled me over like teachers often do. And at that point, I switched from being a general linguist to being an English linguist. And the rest is history. <laughs> now, <laughs> in a sense, yes. People's grasp of grammar, and you talk a little bit about this in the book, you know, it seems to have declined over the years. And now some people, even some publications who, you know, that uh, 20 years ago would never have said this, some adopt the approach that anything goes, that the, the English language has evolved and therefore it's okay to say this or that. How important is grammar still in today's world? Oh, grammar rules we're talking about now. <laughs> yes, uh, still mm. very, very important. This notion of anything goes was always rubbish, you know. Um, no, no linguist ever, ever would say anything goes, um, no more than anybody else would, because the issues that we're talking about here are just a tiny part of the language as a whole. You know, 90% or more of the grammar that uh, you and I are using now is uncontentious. Nobody ever argues about it. You yes. know, the fact that the word the goes before the noun, so we say the car and not car the. Well, who would ever argue against that? That's an obvious rule in the language. And if you're teaching English to people who learn it as a foreign language, then you're teaching them that sort of rule that everybody agrees about without any issue at all. So when people talk about anything goes, what they mean is that um, for those areas of the language where usage is divided, where you might say one thing and I might say another. You know the sort of thing I mean. People say, you should never end a sentence with a preposition. You mm. should never say, this is the man I was talking to. This, you mm. should say, this is the man to whom I was talking. Well, this is clearly a difference between speaking in a very informal way, this is the chap I was talking to, and a very formal way, this is the man to whom I was talking. Now, when you say anything goes, all I mean is that both are possible in the English language, that mm. so long as you make sure that you know that one is more informal than the other and you suit your choice of, the, of which one you use to the circumstances in which you find yourself, then you're in a much more powerful position to use your language well than if you take the old-fashioned way, which is only one of those two is correct. Only the formal way is correct. The informal way is wrong. And so when people talk about anything goes, all they mean is 
different stylistic alternatives in the language are equally valid. But it only applies to a very, very small number of cases. There aren't very many rules in the language like the preposition one we were talking about. Mm. Now, you've said that you have studied some other languages, you know, when you were at school, French, Latin, that sort of thing. Do you, In comparison to what, the way they treat their grammar, do you think that English grammar makes the most sense or makes sense? Well, I think, you, you know, you've identified a very important point there, Valerie, when you mentioned that, that you know, a lot, of lis- a lot of listeners simply never did any grammar. Once upon a time, everybody did, of course, yeah. um, back up until in this country, in the UK, up until the 1960s. And Australia was the same, actually. Very um, similar, yes. Every- everybody did formal grammar in school and learnt all about prepositions and nouns and what they meant and so on. And then it went out. And, uh, and and the reason it went out is, is complicated. There are lots of issues that were involved, but basically, uh, p- people people argued that there was there was no point to grammar. Why why do, why do we have to spend all this time teaching kids to know what a preposition is? You see, and 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 it simply went out of out of use, and was replaced by well nothing. <laughs> um, there was there were there were of course general chats in classrooms about uh, the importance of language and how advertising is a very uh, uh, a kind of language you have to watch out for and let's let's think about ads and what they do in life and all this sort of thing, but two generations of people were were raised without any knowledge of grammar at all, and if you don't have any knowledge of grammar, it's a bit like trying to talk about anything without any technical terms. And if you want to talk, you're interested in language, and everybody is, and you want to talk about why this particular sentence has an effect, a really dramatic effect, and this one doesn't. Give you an example. Sort of thing you get when you're studying a a novel or something like this, or a poem, um, or or even an advertising slogan. And uh, you get two, uh, two sentences, like, the old ruined house stood on the hillside. And the other sentence is, the house, old, ruined stood on the hillside and you say to people which is the more atmospheric sentence and they all say well the second one of course you know the house old ruined and i say explain it why but you mustn't use any technical terms and you can't do it mm-hmm. so you say well the the tooth well the, you start to flutter and, and and you don't know what to say whereas if you know the words noun and adjective and you can say to people look Normally in English, the adjective goes before the noun. The old ruined house stood on the hillside. Whereas if you put the adjectives after the noun, it immediately makes the sentence more atmospheric. And as soon as you do that, you've got a rule. And then you can say, I'm going to test that. That sounds really good. I'm going to look at Roald Dahl and Terry Pratchett and all these people and see if that's what they do. And of course, they do. And at that point, you suddenly realize that actually knowing a little bit of grammar is very, very useful. It doesn't just enable you to make sense. It enables you to see how people use language and why they use language and why you are so affected by language when you read people playing with grammar in this kind of way. Mm. Now, as you said, uh, a couple of generations in both our countries missed out on learning this sort of thing. Is your what's your purpose of writing a book like this? Is it to educate those people? Is it to just amuse yourself? Is it what's the prime driver for you to write this this book? 
Well, it's a bit like the BBC, really, and I suppose the ABC, too. You know, what's the function of the BBC? To inform, educate and entertain. Um, it's, it's trying to bring all those three things together. Mm. Uh, to inform, first of all. The, 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 re the main reason for writing Making Sense was to answer the question I get all the time from people, which is why? Why grammar? And that's what we talked about a few minutes ago. The aim of grammar is to make sense of words. The aim of grammar is to show how it is we can communicate meaningfully. And then, uh, so there's a kind of educational purpose there. And, there. and you can explain about grammar by showing its history. First of all, by showing where the grammar notions come from. Who invented these terms in the first place? You know, where did words like subject and predicate come from? Oh, this is very interesting. It goes right back to classical times. So that's one dimension. But as you'll have seen, there's another dimension to the way I talk about grammar, and that is to show how children learn grammar. Mm. Naturally, as they grow up, there's no grammar when you're born. So when do kids start to put sentences together and how do they do it? And how do they learn these rules in the first place? So there is a kind of parallel track approach to grammar in the book, isn't there, Valerie? I mean, yeah, you get, on the one hand, the historical side, which is the more academic side, if you like. And then there's the side that I think find most people find absolutely fascinating, which is how did your little kiddie learn grammar? What were the stages through which that little kiddie went? And at what point could you say, my child has learnt the grammar of the English language or the Aboriginal language or the French language or whatever language that the kid is happening to learn. And so that is the entertaining side, if you like, <laughs> the fact that you can easily identify with uh, children's learning of language as much as uh, understanding the more academic dimension to the subject. Yeah, that's a great insight and a great explanation of, of exactly that. So the, the thing that's very entertaining for me as well are the interludes. Now, every so often you include these interludes, which are some are, you know, historical trivia, some are little um, explanations of certain things about grammar, which are, are just little snippets. And I found them great little uh, insertions in, in the book. Did you have a favourite interlude or bit of trivia that you that people would find interesting or, or um, fascinating that you would like to share? <laughs> yeah, I love the interludes. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I think when you're when you're trying to explain a subject that can be um, somewhat arcane, you know, somewhat abstract, language is a bit like that, whether it's pronunciation or grammar or semantics, vocabulary, whatever it is, especially grammar, though, it's a very abstract subject in, in some ways. And so I think people need time to breathe when they're reading a book on grammar. And that's what the interludes do. You've just been hit between the eyes with a, uh, a big chunk of, of grammatical explanation and you think, oh, I need a moment to think about that. <laughs> and that's the point where you put in a little interlude. I don't do it after every chapter. I do it only after the chapters where I think people need that kind of breathing space. Mm. And, oh, I love them all. But the one I love most, I suppose, what is it? Well, uh, when um, people in Australia will have encountered the phenomenon of Mr. Gove, who was Minister of Education here uh, a few years ago, um, the, one of the senior politicians in the Tory party. And uh, he is on record as uh, saying that um, to his civil servants, when he changed his job and he became chancellor, um, you must never 
begin a sentence with the word however. <laughs> you must not do this. It is absolutely wrong. It, it, it is mm. fundamentally bad grammar. And he issued a directive to mm. all the civil servants saying, never begin a sentence with the word however. Now, many of, many of listeners here will remember similar things in school. You should never begin a sentence with the word and. Or you should never begin a sentence with the word but. Millions of kids have been taught this stupid rule because yes. it never existed in English. If you go right back to Anglo-Saxon times, you'll find sentences beginning with the word and. Shakespeare does it all the time. The King James Bible, uh, if you go to chapter one, book one of Genesis, and you look at the 31 or so verses that there are, 29 of them begin with the word and. You know, and God did this, and God did that, and God did the other. And however, is another example of this sort of thing. And so what was interesting is to look at the way in which Mr. Gove said, you really shouldn't use, begin the words, sentences with the word however. You should follow various famous authors. And he then names a number of famous authors and say, you should write like them. But, of course, the first thing I did was I went to those authors and found that they all begin sentences with the word however. <laughs> And including Mr. Gove himself, of course, on some other occasion. And so this is the thing about prescriptivism, that people make rules which they don't follow themselves. They make artificial rules that are nothing whatever to do with the, the way the language actually works. And that makes an interesting interlude. It's a great interlude. Now, I have a question for you, which I suspect that you might not you know, like, <laughs> but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I suspect people ask you this quite a lot. Do you have a personal grammar pet peeve? <laughs> yeah, I love that question because mm. the answer is absolutely unequivocally no. Nor do I have, yeah, nor do I have the opposite because people also say, do you have a favourite um, grammatical-like uh, rather than a dislike. And the answer to that is no. Linguists don't have favorites, or at least this one doesn't. That's a bit like going into a, that's a, bit like going into a doctor's surgery and saying, doctor, what is your favorite disease? <laughs> and the doctor will look at you and say, what? That makes no sense. And, and to me as a linguist, questions of like and dislike don't make sense either. I mean, as a human being, of course, um, I have my likes and dislikes. I like certain authors. I like certain ways of writing um, and so on. But, you know, they're, they're just it's like going into a garden and saying, what's your favorite flower? And, and to me, they're, they're all wonderful. And maybe on one occasion, I might like this one more than that one. It's very much like that with the, uh, with the, the business of, of grammar for me. Um, I, I love the way in which uh, grammar is there waiting to be used by individual authors. And if if you, if I can put it this way. My favorite thing is when an author does something really daring in the use of grammar and tries to twist the sentence in a certain way. Robert Graves, the, the novelist, once said um, a poet uh, should master the rules of English grammar before he attempts to bend and break them. And it's the bending and breaking of rules that actually is, I suppose, if anything, uh, my favorite thing about grammar. 
Mm. Now, you've also written some books on pronunciation and you cover in those books how things have been pronounced in the past, you know, hundreds of years ago. Where do you go for that kind of research? I'm curious to know because how do you know how certain words were pronounced in the past, you know, in 1500 or 1200 or whatever? How can you be sure? Yes, this is the historical side of of linguistics, historical phonology, it would be in this particular case. Yes, I suppose you're referring mainly to the work I've been doing in recent years with my son, Ben, on original pronunciation in relation to Shakespeare, mainly. Mm. But what you do is, is you go to that period in the past and you look at the data that's there. So when you go to Shakespeare, for instance, one of the first things you notice, any listener who's ever listened to Shakespeare notices this at some point, that a lot of the rhymes don't work in Shakespeare. You go to the sonnets, for instance, or Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a very rhyming play, and you find that an awful lot of the rhymes simply don't work. Shakespeare rhymes a word like love with a word like prove, for instance. And you say to yourself, what? Uh, Shakespeare, do you not know how to rhyme? Mm -hmm. And you have to say, well, actually what's happened is the pronunciation has changed. And it was was love and prov. And you say to me, well, how do you know it was prov and not the other way around, louve and prove? Mm. Well, now now you have to go to a second kind of evidence, and that is the evidence of the people who actually wrote about pronunciation in Shakespeare's day. And there were several people who wrote books on pronunciation. And that gives you information, and that shows you that what they will actually say to you at one point, uh, prov has a short vowel, just like love has. You think, oh, thank you very much. That's exactly what I was looking out for. Right. So you go to the... You find the David Crystal of of, of that time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, effectively, yes, except an awful lot of the people were not linguists as such. They were, you know, Ben Johnson, the dramatist, for instance, wrote an English grammar in which he talks about pronunciation. Mm-hmm. So you look at the rhymes, you look at the puns that don't work in modern English, that must have worked 400 years ago. You look at the spellings. Spelling is such an important guide to pronunciation in those days. Today it isn't. You know, English spelling is a pain for an awful lot of people, and it doesn't really reflect pronunciation very well. But 400 years ago it did. And so you look at all those sources, put them together, and you reconstruct the earlier pronunciation as best you can. It's never going to be 100% authentic, but it's going to be 90% plausible. Mm. Now, uh, when you're doing that kind of research, and obviously you did a lot of research for Making Sense as well, do you uh, tell me about your writing process for this particular book? We'll, we'll, We'll deal with this particular book. You would have had knowledge that was, you know, in your head for many years, but you would have had a whole heap of research and then you would have had stories that you wanted to include to express certain things. How did you actually approach your writing process? Did you just write in a linear fashion? Did you have uh, plan it out with index cards? You know, can you talk us through that actual process? Sure. Well, anybody who wants to write on language, the first thing you have to do is collect your stories, get your anecdotes. You have to be a good listener. You have to be a good watcher out for things. You always have. In my day, you'd have a little notebook in your pocket. These days, you have your iPad or your iPhone or something, or whatever it is, and you, uh, and you start making notes on there. But you are listening all the time. You're making notes all the time, interesting things that are happening. So when I'm thinking about a book on grammar, uh, I spend a certain amount of time 
in the very early period. Some of the stories, of course, I've got already from previous ex encounters with grammar, of course, but you just go around making notes and building up a huge pile of, of anecdotes of one kind and another. And these are the things that are going to enliven the general account that you're actually going to write. Now, that general account is, it, where does that come from? Where does the original idea for a book on grammar come from, the, the particular insight that says, I'm going to start it in this particular way. That's exactly the same question as you ask any novelist, any short story writer, any poet, where does the idea come from? They have no idea at all. <laughs> They're just sitting there and then one day, wow, I know what it is and inspiration comes. And in this particular case, the inspiration came um, when uh, I was uh, giving a talk on grammar, uh, as I often do, to a group of teachers, and one teacher actually said at the end of the talk, well, that was very interesting. You've told us a lot about grammar, but, you know, why? Why is grammar there at all? And it was such a fundamental question. I thought, Do you know, I, I, I didn't answer that question in the talk. And then I thought, you know, there is a book waiting to be written there about the why of grammar. And then you start to organize your thoughts. And uh, um, yes, indeed, I, I, I start jotting things down on screen these days. In the old days, it was on a piece of paper. Do, do you remember paper, Valerie? <laughs> And, and, and pencils and pens and things like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I start to jot things down in that kind of way. Um, and then, uh, because language is so multifaceted, there are so many aspects. I mean, there are 3,000 or more points about grammar that, that you deal with when you're sort of learning a language, learning a language like English. And you think, where am I going to start? Now, you could start in a hundred different places. And my advice to, to any writer writing on anything, actually, is don't spend too long wondering about where to start. Uh, just start. Yeah. Just write something down. It may be rubbish. And at the end of the day, you may think, I'm not going to start there at all. But get something down on the page as quickly as possible and then read it and reread it and read it. Every page of that book that we're talking about today, I have read probably three or four hundred times before <laughs> I decided, decided on the final version that I want to appear in the book. And that process of, of rereading and rereading and then leaving it on one side, going away and doing something else and then coming back uh, hours later, maybe even days later and reading it again and saying to yourself either, you know, that's rubbish. I'm not going to use that. Or more usually, hey, that was actually quite good. <laughs> I actually like that bit. And that's the exciting point. Now, there are some, I know there's going to be a bunch of listeners who were part of those two generations, you know, who missed out. And they, by virtue of the fact that they're listening to, the, to this podcast, they're interested in writing, but they don't have the confidence with their grammar because they were never taught. What's your advice to people who are listening who want to know, okay, I'm an adult now and I don't have that confidence. Where do I start? Well, you, you 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 go and find a user-friendly um, book on grammar if you're interested in knowing about grammar. Now, it's a very important distinction here. No listener who's understanding what I'm saying at the moment doesn't know grammar. 
I mean, they must do. If they're understanding me, they have internalized the grammar of the English language and we are understanding each other. And right. any of those listeners, any of those listeners who wants to, to, to write whatever it is, a novel or a play or a poem or, or, or a textbook or whatever it is, um, they already know the, the grammar of the language. It's already there. The uncertainty comes from wondering whether they're going to upset somebody by using a grammatical construction that might or might not be appropriate, you know, whether they're going to split an infinitive or something. They've heard of these vague rules and they know that people get very upset about some of them and they're scared stiff that they're going to cause an upset by using the language in a way that some people are going to criticise. And that, of course, is a long tradition in English. That people are very ready to criticise other people's <laughs> use of language. And so that's where the lack of confidence comes. And so at that point, it is useful to pick up a, a user-friendly book on, on grammar, which will tell you about those areas of the language which are a bit contentious and where you have to be a bit careful uh, and, and, and decide whether you, you want to use the language in a certain way or in a, a different way. And, what, and, and there are several excellent b books out there. Uh, your own uh, Pam Peters in Australia has uh, edited a fantastic um, book called the Cambridge Style Guide, uh, the, the, uh, the Guides on English Usage, you know, goes through all these contentious points. If you want something a little bit more systematic about grammar, there's my own little book called Rediscover Grammar. And I chose the title Rediscover simply because everybody knows something about grammar, uh, but mm. they may not know the whole story. But if you pick up a book like that, what you must never do, never, 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 is try to read it all in one go. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that, uh, because that will swamp you. If you're not used to grammar, it will swamp you. Just read a little bit and then take the examples of the chapter and look in your own usage, the way you write yourself for similar examples and internalize it. Take time to feel comfortable with that particular chapter. You know, it takes little children the best part of five or six years before they are competent in all aspects of English grammar. You know, if they start at age one, thereabouts, putting sentences together, you know, like daddy go and want car and where Bicky and all of this. <laughs> well, it takes going to take another five years or so before they start using sentences in the way that you and I are using them and even longer before they use some of the more sophisticated kinds of sentence construction like you and I can say notwithstanding uh, well no seven-year-old does that you know so there's, there's even even longer before you master every aspect of the grammar so it takes a long time for the kiddies to learn grammar and they're, they're learning it 24-7 well except when they're sleeping of course um, now when you pick up a grammar book don't fall into the trap of trying to learn it all at once. Yeah. Spread it out. And this is the same for teachers in schools. You know, don't try and teach all the grammar at once. Spread it out over several years of the curriculum. And then people will find themselves comfortably encountering this subject. Well, if there's anyone that can make grammar user-friendly and highly entertaining at the same time, I think it's definitely you, David. So Making <laughs> Sense, The Glamorous Story of English Grammar is 
a hoot. It's fantastic. It is informative. It's educational. And uh, as I mentioned, it's it's highly entertaining as well. So I encourage any listener who wants to find out a little bit more about grammar or simply who wants a great read, this is the book to get. So thank you so much for your time today, David. Really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure, Valerie. Thank you so much indeed. What a great interview, Val. You were absolutely right. Word nerds can be interesting. <laughs> I, will give the, I will give you that. <laughs> All right. So um, have a look at the book if you're into grammar, but even if you're not, this is the sort of book that is um, just funny and entertaining uh, and informative and educational. All right. So let's move on to our app of the week, shall we? Let's. Our app is called One Word, and you can Ooh. simply find it at oneword.com. Now, I like this because often we say to ourselves, we don't have time to explore our creativity. We don't have time to write. We don't have time to whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing about this app, One Word, and you can just do it on the bus or you can do it waiting for your kids or whatever, is that it gives you one word. <laughs> so, okay. for example, the word that I that's popped up for me today is true, T-R-U-E, and it's a different one word each time. And then it gives you uh, 60 seconds to write 100 words about that word. So it's just a great oh. writing exercise when you're, right. when you're just waiting or something like that and you can just um, – you know, do something to boost your creativity or let your flex your creative muscles, really. You might not necessarily have to write that novel or that short story or whatever, but this app, again, 60 seconds, 100 words in one word. So very simple. Fantastic. Now, I thought we would move on to something that I experienced this week that I think is relevant to authors, but um, that's not how I discovered it. Okay. Because my latest thing, I can't remember if I've told you, Al, is okay. weaving. Sorry, what? Weaving. You know, weaving. Like, yeah, weaving like upside so you're down. Basket weaving. No, not baskets. No, fabric. No. Yeah. So, well, I started off uh, weaving. <laughs> you're gonna really think I'm a word nerd now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is the truth, though. Okay. I started off weaving lorem ipsum. Is this like is this instead of cage fighting or no, oil painting addition. or in addition to all of these things? Yeah. No, I don't do oil painting. Uh, in addition, yeah. So I thought you were doing painting. No, I wasn't. Oh, I did one class. No. Oh, sorry. And okay. So, um, so but I'm doing art classes on weekends, and right. my teacher who. I like I didn't even know anything about my background. Didn't know I was a writer. I don't think. And didn't know I loved typography. Uh, got all this lorem ipsum, and we cut up all this lorem ipsum. So lorem ipsum, of course, is the fake Latin that um, designers use in mm. mock-ups. You know, it looks like mm -hmm. Latin, but it's not really Latin. I always thought um, it was Latin. Remember, we <laughs> talked about that, <laughs> yes. and I was I was horrified and mortified to discover it actually wasn't Latin at yeah, all. No, nah, fake Latin. Yeah. So we cut it into strips, and we I wove lorem ipsum, and I thought and I thought this was awesome because I loved typography and I loved the font that he chose as well. Anyway, that got me. And weaving. I then started weaving photographs. I then started weaving wool and different types of fabrics. And now I've moved on to industrial materials like weaving rope. However, 
that's beside the point. The point is I was (laughs) – You astound me on a regular basis. You really do. Anyway, keep going, yes. I was researching on the internet because I'm now obsessed with weaving weaving, and I was researching on the internet where I could learn more about weaving and I found different people who run weaving workshops. Hmm. And as – and I thought, okay, yeah, and they'll they'll write, you know, on – usually they're on Instagram because obviously the craft of weaving is very visual. Hmm. So they put their stuff up on Instagram and they say, oh, so looking forward to my workshop this Saturday. There's still some places – but no link to go to find out where the workshop is. And and then no link in the bio. Oh. Immediately made me think if you're an author, you should be either putting your um, website in your link on your Instagram bio or a link to where you can buy the book if you've got one book or your latest book, right? Mm. And, you know, if you're not doing that, I think you're nuts. So no link in bio. So I thought, <laughs> okay, that's fine. I'll just Google, 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 Google. And when I Google these people, so many of them had no website. Okay, fine. If you don't mm-hmm. have a website, you still need people, you need to be findable. Same goes mm. for authors. So if you don't have a website because you don't want to invest in it or whatever, at least then have a Facebook page. So if you're an author, you don't have a website, at least have your Facebook page or profile so that people can connect with you there and at least post a uh, a link to find your book, but also B, if you a link to um, you know any activities that you do or other social media where people can find out more about you, or if you don't even have that articles about you, you can put links to that so that people can find out more about you. But it, it's certainly a lesson for a lot of authors who they might be on social media, but if you've got an Instagram profile or a Twitter or whatever, and then you don't subsequently find have a link for people to find out more about you or buy your book or whatever, mm. it's just uh, mm. you're leaving money on the table. Mm. So true. So true. So true. So there you go. That's what weaving taught about me. So I think that that's really important. And, of course, if you uh, want to find out the exact steps that you need to take to build your author platform, make sure you check out Alison's course, which is awesome, called How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find out more at Writer Center dot com dot au slash platform that's writercenter.com.au slash platform and you think it's so important that you think Alta, what what do you think your instagram link should go to uh well you know i i think probably the best place for it to go is a website because then it's got you can put more information you can put on a website you've got the room and it's your real estate and you've got the space to put anything you want but at bare minimum I think a Facebook page is not a bad alternative in the sense that at least if you don't a, have a website, yeah. if you don't have a website, because at least there is again, there's a bit of room there. You can actually, mm. you know, you can fill out your about section. You can post regularly. You can do sort of, you know, if you've got a workshop, you can put all the information about that workshop in a in an event on your Facebook yeah. page or something. Just it, it's it's got to be somewhere where you can expand the information required. There's got to be some yes. contact details. There has to be some way for people to actually get in touch with you. Otherwise, as you say, you are leaving money on the table. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it's, if you are giving workshops, also it's um. Uh, as I was exploring all of these weavers, a lot of people would have their mobile number up there and they'll say, mm-hmm. see you at the workshop this Saturday, but there's no indication what state they're in. So mm-hmm. I don't know whether they're in Brisbane or Melbourne or whatever. You can't tell from a mobile number. 
So um, be helpful to people in terms of your location if that's relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, very definitely. All right, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Al, where do we find you online? Uh, you will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. Awesome. And you'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram. And feel free to connect with me on Facebook as well. I'm pretty easy to find. Just search for Valerie Koo in Sydney and we look forward to connecting with you. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, everybody, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.